1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd like to read through the first 12 verses. And then we'll pray and dig into the truth of God's Word tonight. The Word of God says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children's children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, we, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's start with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we do thank you. Again, we've had a full day. Tremendous opportunities to grow in fellowship with you through your word. I pray that tonight, through your word, our cup would run over because your spirit speaks and pours into our hearts. I pray as we look at your word tonight that you would help us to look at it accurately so that we may apply it appropriately. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been using the concept of using a camera correctly to be able to capture the details of a picture that we are trying to take. While the advancements of technology have allowed for the average person to be a professional photographer with the use of their smartphones, it does have limitations in its factory settings and automatically capturing details that we may want to remember. Learning how to use the camera as it was intended to be used will help us capture the important details that cause us to stop and view them with great captivation. There are times where we will glance over a picture because we have so many of them to look through. Have you ever been there? I know, um, I'm not cautious here. My wife has her Google Pixel for one reason, because she has unlimited Google cloud storage with her photos. She doesn't delete things and deleting. So sometimes we just scroll through photos upon photos. And as I've, as I've gotten older with my camera, I've realized I probably have just as many photos as her as I, as I continually mock why she needs that. And I look at mine and I'm like, man, there's so many of these photos. I know many of you are probably in a similar boat. I might one day want to look at that photo again. And you keep it. 
However, when we glance over a photo because we have so many of them to look like, we, we tend to miss out on some wonderful details captured by the photographer, whether it's yourself or somebody else. It's fascinating to me that we can do the same thing in our time with the Word of God. In fact, it can be quite easy for us to be zoomed in on the pictures of God's Word that we miss sometimes details of the bigger picture. I do praise the Lord that even though I may be in a rush with my quiet times, that the details are still there. And that when I re-look at the Word of God and I look at my time with Him, He still reveals the same picture and details that I can continue to look at and know more about Him. It does challenge me to stop and ask the Lord for clarity as I read His Word. And we saw from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 the picture of an ideal church. This concept of a picture helps us encapsulate what the picture looks like and just how many details are present. We saw the origin of the church is God. We also saw the details of the ministry of the church, details such as giving specific praise to God for the work you see Him doing in others. Detail of living the evidence of Christ at work in our life. Details of a life that reflects Christ by seeking to imitate Him. Paul is going to start chapter 2 by zooming in on this detail of imitating Christ by helping us see what a disciple or follower of Christ should look like. And as we begin this section tonight, let me first begin by giving you a definition of discipleship. I think it's important that we're on the same page as we begin. I'll define, I wish I had it on the screen, I don't have it here for you, but I'll define it tonight. A disciple is a lifelong follower and learner of Jesus. If you've been in care groups with me coming in, you've known these definitions as I've given them to you before. But it's just good to be reminded. A disciple, again, is a lifelong follower and learner of Jesus. It conveys the idea of an apprentice, not just a mere student. Discipleship, as we'll begin to look at and understand, is defined as leveraging all that I am in Christ and all that I have because of Christ with the purpose of becoming and helping others become more like Jesus. Let me say it again. Leveraging all that I am in Christ and all that I have because of Christ with the purpose of becoming and helping others become more like Jesus. It becomes an intentional relationship that we build with someone else, recognizing that I am building this relationship not just to help them, but specifically to help me grow in my fellowship with Christ. Husbands, this begins with you and your spouse. And then it moves to your children. Wives, this begins with you and then your husbands. And then moves to your children. And then it flows itself out to our workplace, to our communities around us. But I think the concept that we need to take away and understand is that discipleship takes teamwork. 
The Christian life was never meant to be about the individual, but about community. I think the idea of teamwork, as an illustration that I've used in many of our care groups, has helped me understand the, this concept the best and what discipleship looks like. We are teammates. If we have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we are on the same team. My goal is to grow in Christ-likeness. Your goal is to grow in Christ-likeness. And because of our unity found in Christ, we continually be on the same team, and why not grow together? Sometimes I think we get the idea of discipleship as this t uh, uh, player and coach mentality. That if I'm going to truly disciple you, that I have to be your coach. Well, sometimes when we think of a coach uh, helping a player develop in a game or a sport, sometimes there causes a fear to be about that. I don't know enough about the game. <laughs> I'm coaching junior high basketball right now. I don't know enough about basketball. I'll tell you that. Well, I'm not even the head coach. I'm just the assistant. I'm just there for the ride to kind of give input as I can. I'm having fun. But sometimes we let that fear be the reason why we can't help somebody else grow in their relationship with Christ. We begin to misunderstand the definition of discipleship and think it's really about me trying to help you grow in your walk with the Lord. And we feel like there's a coaching aspect that has to come on the scene. That can be quite overwhelming, can't it? Folks, at night I come back to this teammate illustration because it has helped me understand that my job isn't to coach you, although sometimes coaching happens when we're playing with teammates, doesn't it? You expect an experienced player to be able to look at the inexperienced player and say, hey, let me help you develop in the game. Let me help give you some tools. Let me help bring you along because I see some potential in you. But you know what I find when that teammate is bringing that other player along? He himself grows. When we think of the player-coach mentality, I think that it can be appropriate at times. But if I could put it this way, Pastor Ken is our coach for this local church, and when he gets up on Sunday morning and feeds us from God's Word, he's giving us instruction as a body how we ought to play as a team. How we are to grow in Christ-likeness. However, we as teammates take that message and begin to apply it together. Teammates challenge each other to get better at the game. As I've mentioned, an experienced player ought to come along the inexperienced player and encourage them in their walk, specifically with Christ, by walking alongside of them. It is important for us to note that discipleship can take on various forms. There are times where we will use material to assist in that process. We use things like foundations found in the bookstore. You might have gone through the steps of joy. Something similar of a programmatic aspect to helping us grow in our fellowship with Christ. However, that is not the end all of discipleship. There are times where we use Bible study and classes to assist in this process. Our very own care groups and our ABFs, adult Bible fellowships, are structured around us growing in our fellowship with Christ. But folks, they are not the end all. They are a tool 
Our children's and youth ministries and even Christian schools can provide great aids to helping us nurture our children in the Lord, but they cannot be the nurturing. It involves you as the parent along the journey. If you're going to properly apply the details in the picture of an ideal church, then we must understand what a model disciple looks like and then learn how to replicate it. Tonight, we must first begin with the message of discipleship. The message of discipleship, the gospel. Four times here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul uses the word gospel. He says in verse 2, We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Verse 4, We have been approved by God to, entr to be entrusted with the gospel. Again in verse 8, We were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but ourselves also. In verse 9, We preach to you the gospel of God. Because Paul is using this term so often, I think it is important for us tonight to get a clear definition of what Paul means when he continually refers to this word, the gospel. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First chapter, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses one through eight, are really a clear picture of what it looks like to, to what the gospel is defined as. I don't know about you, but I remember my days in Awana, in Sparks, having to learn First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses three and four, and taking like six weeks <laughs> to get there. They're so long and big, but they are so important. The message of discipleship is the gospel. So what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you stand, by which you were also saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. The message of the gospel... It can probably be assumed tonight that most of us here are familiar with the meaning of the term for gospel, good news. I sat in on IBCS's senior oral boards that they do with their pastoral and, and ministry majors, and one of the questions they have to answer on that board is, what is define the gospel? Have you ever tried to define it? Have you ever sat down and just thought through what is the gospel? I think that's paramount for us to understand. Not just know that it's the story of good news, but what it's about. You begin with a notion of the gospel, the beginning, that Christ's death was a real event. Not a fabricated myth to appease a mythical deity. 
in that, the aspects of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he being seen by many witnesses after the resurrection are all encompassed in the reality of the gospel. I find it important for us to see, as 1 Corinthians 15 points out, it was all in fulfillment of the word of God. In other words, God did as he said he would do. As I understand what the gospel is, that it entails Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and the fact that others saw him as eyewitnesses after the resurrection, I need to understand the necessity or the need for the gospel. Again, we might be the home crowd tonight, but it's such a good reminder for us to walk through singing that song of His Robes for Mine. What a wonderful reminder of what Christ has done for us. In the necessity of the gospel, we see first the separation, our sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 gives us the definition of sin, that sin is lawlessness. We see it as missing the mark, falling short of the glory of God is that mark or the expectation in which God expects. And when God created us, He created us in His image. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, or to be as He is, holy. Our sin from the Word of God indicates to us that our, we distorted that image of God in our desire to be as he created us. Leads us to the sinner. For all have sinned, you and I, together. Our natural state, our natural desires are not to live a life of holiness as God defines it, but to live a life of self-gratification. This is the result of sin. Right? You were not taught how to lie. You were not taught how to cheat. You were not taught how to be disobedient. You were not taught how to gossip. I think it's pretty obvious for most of us, right? Even to bring it more to, closer to home. I didn't sit down with my kids one day specifically Eddie and Linray, and say, you know what, Eddie, I am so tired of you getting along with Linray. You know, you guys are just so kind to each other. You use such encouraging words with one another. I am so sick of it. Let me teach you, Eddie, how to cut down your sister. Eddie, let me teach you how to give slander towards her. Or let me teach you how to annoy her in a way that will get her in trouble. We both know that never had to be taught. Right? It's quite the opposite. <laughs> Where did you learn that from? And I look at my wife and I say, not me. <laughs> Therein is the truth revealed. It's myself, usually. We were just talking about Joey the other day and his lack of desire, sorry, a squirrel, his lack of desire to do schoolwork. And I told babe, I said, you know, honey, that is, uh, <laughs> that is me. Yeah. 
there's no cure. <laughs> you just hope he gets along. <laughs> right? We're not taught how to sin. Our natural state because of sin, the genetics in which we are, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, tells us because of one man's disobedience, sin entered the world, therefore death by sin. We're taught how not to sin and the importance of that. There's a sum or a cost that comes with sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we know that the payment or the wages of sin is death, to be separated eternally from God. A price will have to be paid. I found it interesting as I was thinking through this concept, as, this con- as we think about there's a cost for my sin, and showing just how much we don't like the idea of sin or the idea that God would condemn us for our sin, even in the reality of, of what we think there's a cost for our sin, we oftentimes think about, I can negotiate God's demands. There is no negotiation here. God's Word says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of our sin is death, to be separated from God for eternity. I am paying the price without Christ that God demands. Meaning that God has already established the cost of sin. This is not, again, a negotiation. And when we think of that sum and the cost of our sin, knowing that we all are sinners, right, it's good to be reminded that I'm hopeless without Christ. I deserve that cost. Nothing in and of myself desires to do what's right, to be holy as he is holy. And in reality, I'm hopeless. And we get to the second half of that verse. The wages of sin is death, but what? The gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the sacrifice the payment for our sin. We see in the sacrifice that Christ in his deity took on humanity. I'd encourage you to take some time this week and study Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, especially as we come up in the next couple of weeks to Easter, understanding what it is or what it means that Jesus would die on the cross for my sin. We see in his deity that God loves us. And that demonstration of love from Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was my sacrifice. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, that Christ became the propitiation for our sin. We'll talk about that here in a second. As an aspect of how much God loves us. When I go back to that Philippians passage, I find that Jesus is willing to give up position, his deity, to be at our level, to take on our humanity. He was tempted as we are tempted. He felt emotions as we feel emotions. He had to grow, Luke 2.52, as we grow. Hebrews 4.15 tells us an understanding that he chose to give up his deity to demonstrate he can truly sympathize with us in our weakness. He knows our pains. He knows what it means to be tempted. 
yet without sin. Christ in his humanity lived a sinless life. Christ mastered God's law in the place of sinners who could not. Have you ever tried just to go a day without sin? What do you find yourself doing? Most of the time we find ourselves justifying why we could do what we wanted to do rather than being honest about what our sin is, that, God, I wanted myself pleased over anything you would want in my life. Because Christ mastered God's law in the place of sinners, he thus earned righteousness on our behalf. Christ in his humanity became our substitute, right? Hebrews 9, 22 reminds us that life, the life of the flesh is in the blood, meaning that needed, the sacrifice needed to be made was life for life. The difference between Jesus' death on the cross and the sacrifice of an animal of the Old Testament period was the animal was not of equal value to us. It was a constant reminder of their need to shed the blood in forgiveness of sins, and yet Christ's death on the cross was of equal value. He suffered the way, he, I mean, he, he felt the temptation the way we felt it. He, he, he was tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin, which allowed for him to take the wrath of God and be perfect, the wrath of God to be perfectly satisfied. As we sang in the song, God's the propitiation one. God's satisfaction had been appeased. The wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus bore the infinite wrath of God against sin, satisfying God's wrath and enabling sinners to be forgiven, and justly so. Sometimes I think that's one of the hardest concepts. God, I don't deserve this. And we think to the reality, you're right, my sin does separate me from eternity. But I've got to understand that I was created in the image of God and because God wants that image restored. My sin is what separates me from restoring that image and he says, I've given you one thing, one person in place. Jesus paid the price. He's the wrath that satisfied my wrath. He's the, he's the sacrifice that satisfied my wrath and the payment the cost for your sin. My man's sin was placed on Christ. We know that from the Gospels that God could not look at sin and when our sin was placed upon Jesus, God turned his back on his son knowing the price had been paid. And I think that helps to remind us that the satisfaction, the sacrifice being made shows that there is a sufficiency in that sacrifice. The resurrection was the final piece to indicate Christ's power over both sin and death. Satan was now defeated. Satan thought he had won when he put Christ upon the cross. When Christ was put into the tomb, he thought, well, finally, I've got the over... I, I, I finally have the victory. I can only, only imagine the, the, the joy and the party that he was throwing for himself only to realize on the morning, Resurrection Sunday, when the tomb was empty and Christ said, I have the ultimate authority. 
I have just demonstrated through Christ, through God, the power over sin and death. Now Christ's sacrifice is offered as a free gift, as a demonstration of God's love. Christ forsaken and the sinner embraced by God. The role change for the sinner and Christ is amazing. The beloved Son of God was forsaken in order that the cursed enemy of God might be beloved. We talked about that word beloved a couple of weeks ago. It's not an act of loving, but in and of itself, we are loved. It's who God is in us and what he does in it for us. And though I understand this doctrine biblically of what Christ has done for me, I certainly cannot fathom it. So we sang that third stanza. I can't even remember that the stanza in of itself and what it was talking through. Christ mastered God's daunting law. He has, though I, accursed and left alone. I'm getting them all mixed up. Good thing I got it right here. Oh, God's justice, his robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed. And I think the most fascinating part of that song, and thus the Father's pleased. Not that God took joy in his son dying on our behalf. He took joy in knowing that our image could be restored and our fellowship with God could once again be renewed because of the perfect satisfaction of the sacrifice of Christ. And what chokes me up is the thought that comes next that Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Since wage is paid, propitiation won. God's satisfaction has been wrath has been appeased Christ's sacrifice is offered as a gift right I can't fathom why he would choose to sacrifice himself for me while I'm grateful that I once again can restore the image of God in my life through Christ As we go back to our text, I want us to see two other things that come out of what is the gospel. Secondly, our defining of it is what is it's a message of conversion. Look back to the first chapter. We finished up with this last week. I think it's important for us to recognize and look. As Paul is continuing on here in chapter 2, there's two facets here that are, that are important for us to see. He begins in verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And here's the key with the gospel. A message of conversion into wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see in verse 10 what he saves us to, the eternal fellowship with Christ. That there is a security that comes with that. When I place my faith and trust in Christ, I am secure in him. No one can take us out of the Father's hand. 
What a blessing that is. It's trusting in His finished atoning work in and of itself. As Pastor Ken has been preaching from Ephesians chapter 2. Nothing that I could do to earn His salvation, trusting only in the finished work of Christ. But it allows for me to see that I have eternal fellowship with Christ. And secondly, sometimes I think this is the one that we don't really want to see. The message of conversion is what He saves us from and the wrath to come. And I think more than likely what we don't like to see about that is because if we understand that we were saved from the wrath to come, it invokes a response from us that sometimes we're not so willing to give. That response then means I have a responsibility because of what Christ has done then to go out and share that same response. Oh, folks, it ought to burden us. Not just to see what I am saved to, a home eternally with Christ and fellowship with Him, but what I am saved from. That I would not wish the wrath of God or man to have to pay for the wrath of God by themselves. Remember, the cost is not negotiable. And the third aspect of the gospel, I think it's a message of spiritual growth, that of our sanctification. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we are different now. And we should live differently now. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our conversion, we ought to think of it this way, therefore, our sanctification. Because of what Jesus has done for us, therefore, I grow in Him, in Christ. You could put it this way, because we have received the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore put off the old man and put on the new. Because we have received the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of our conversion in Jesus, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Because of our conversion, don't be conformed to the world. Because of our conversion, walk in the Spirit. Because of our conversion, love one another. Our salvation and our sanctification, our growth in Christ, our conversion and growth are both rooted in the gospel. So folks, tonight, if we are going to be effective disciple-making disciples, we must be about the gospel. Our thoughts must reflect the message of the gospel. Our words must reflect the message of the gospel. Our attitudes must reflect the message of the gospel. And our actions must reflect the message of the gospel. Oh, church, may we never become complacent about the graciousness of God to save us from the wrath to come. And as 2 Corinthians 5.14 entreats us, may the love of Christ compel us to live for Him so that others may see Christ. May we live the gospel. Let's pray.